We're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. I don't know about you, but I felt like we're gearing up for Easter with those worship songs this morning. We were singing about the resurrection already, and I started to get fired up about that. And then we sing about the lion and the lamb and the, the glorious images that the scriptures have about Jesus. And we're, it just sets us up for where we're going this morning as we wrap up this series on understanding the kingdom of, of God. Our theme this morning is return of the king. So, Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Jesus is speaking. He says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. And said, Go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather together here and to worship freely. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in this land to practice our faith, to worship openly, to proclaim the historic truths of Christian faith, and to stand there in joy. There are parts of this world that you've already changed since the arrival of Jesus and the announcement that your kingdom has come into this world, and yet there's so much more that we long for and look forward to. We look forward to the day when Jesus returns and gathers his people in his arms and as he sets the world right with justice, with truth, and power. And we long for the day when we will see him face to face. Use this time to strengthen our faith and to deepen our understanding and to increase our sense of expectation as we see you at work in each other's lives, little by little transforming us, changing us, rounding off the hard and rough edges, making us more compassionate like Jesus, making us wiser like Jesus, making us stronger like Jesus, to be able to stand on our own, to stand strong, to hold on to the faith that has been handed down to us that goes all the way back to the apostles. This morning, as we gather together here, uh, allow our prayers to reach the very throne of heaven and the burdens on our hearts to be lifted away. We pray that your power would be unleashed little by little, day after day, and that you will be at work hearing our prayers, not only changing our hearts, but affecting others too. 
Lord, we pray for those who are part of our lives this morning who've wandered from you or who've walked away in defiance or who've never been taught about the grace of God through Jesus. We pray that you would hear our prayers about the things that we struggle with in our own lives, the victories that we yet need to see happen, the areas that that hold us back and that drag us down, the sins that so easily entangle us and trip us up. We pray for greater freedom, greater focus, and greater faith. And we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you noticed, but the highest-ranked viewing event of the past few weeks was an interview conducted by Oprah Winfrey with the former Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. More than 17 million people watched the Sunday evening interview in the United States, and then it played again the next day in England. Before that Sunday evening had ended, reactions tended to split two ways, between those who had compassion for the royals who felt trapped in their castle, hounded by persistent prying paparazzi, and fending off death threats from publicity seekers, while others mocked them as highly privileged whiners who are out of touch with the common people. You probably fall in one of those camps or somewhere in the middle, like most other people. Media personnel and celebrity watchers are obsessed with royals. I found it interesting to read Hong Kong's Victor Yap, who points out a painful truth, though, about the royal crowd. He wrote, royalty today is mostly perfunctory. Wow. Mostly perfunctory. That means it's all for show. They receive great wealth, prestige, and privilege, but so often they're just doing a job, and if the job becomes burdensome, sometimes they don't want the job anymore. Now, all of this raises an important question when we talk about the kingdom of God and Jesus as our king. What kind of king is he? And does he just walk away from everything at the end? I think that interview prompts that question and plants that thought in our minds. What kind of king do we serve? Will he too just walk away in the end? Today we're going to see that Jesus is a different kind of king. His role is far more than perfunctory. This morning, we're wrapping up our Kingdom Unity series with this final message on the return of the King. Everything about the life of Jesus is fascinating. He was predicted and prophesied, yet caught everyone by surprise. He was loved and longed for, yet he was also despised. He came to give life, yet was killed. But the best and most hoped for, yet forgotten part of the story is that while Jesus has left the kingdom in the hands of his servants, the king is coming back again. So welcome back, my North River friends. I am so glad that you are here as we wrap up and finish up this series on understanding the kingdom of God. And welcome to those of you here at our campus and those of you who are worshiping online. We are glad that you've chosen to set apart this time. As Christy mentioned a little while ago, on Palm Sunday, beginning next week, we will move back to two in-person services at 9 and 11 a.m. And as more of us get this vaccination, we are making more room to worship here in person at our Pembroke campus when you are ready. 
There is no pressure. We are simply trying to feel our way forward into the change that is coming eventually, and, and we will make room for you as well. You still need to register for those services online, but we hope to make this a safe experience and a great experience for you. As I said last week, though, just don't expect everything to be safe. For more than 30 years, we've been trying to make North River Church a safe place to hear a dangerous message from a king who wants your allegiance, who wants your heart, who wants your mind, and who is one day coming back to set everything right in this world. The power of grace and, and the power of life in Jesus are enough to change your life, no matter how hard your life has been and no matter how difficult and how wandering your struggle. For the next few minutes, we're going to talk about the return of the king. Now, there's some questions I want to raise about Jesus' return, which is one of the central, most historic points or points of theology regarding the life of Jesus and regarding Christian faith. Here's the first question I want to pose to you. What kind of promise is this that Jesus makes? In Matthew 24, verse 30, he says, At that time the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the people of, of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. What kind of promise is this? Is this a campaign promise? Uh, the kind of promise that gets made on the campaign trail that politicians don't want us to remember or ever hold them to? Is, is it one of those? I don't think so. Is it a save-the-date invitation? In every generation, there are writers and teachers who make bold predictions about when the return of Jesus will occur, even though Jesus clearly says that no one knows the day or the hour. People get so bold that there was a book about 30 years ago that someone came out with that said in the opening paragraph, oh, you can't know the day or the hour, but that doesn't mean you can't know, know the month or the year or the minute. And It's like, come on. That was called uh, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. <laughs> and then when it didn't happen, the same authors came out with another book the next year, 89 Reasons Why He Will Return in 89. I'm still sticking with the Gospels. No one knows the day or the hour. It is left that way intentionally. Nevertheless, people are able to convince many that they are smarter than all who've come before, and they've come up with some hidden clue that gives away the secret that no one has ever seen or found before. And every time this happens, those who believe the prediction end up looking foolish. And many others mock the whole idea that Jesus will ever return at all. So what is it? It's not a campaign promise. It's not a save-the-date invitation that you can put on your calendar. It is a glimpse of the final chapter of God's redemption and restoration story. One difficulty for people today is that the promises of Jesus' return come from ancient literature that is wrapped up in different genres from the way that we communicate today. For instance, some of the promises about or glimpses of the return of Jesus come through the book of Daniel and Revelation. Daniel in the Old Testament, Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. And sections of both of those books are written as apocalyptic writings. In the apocalyptic genre, that means that they include several signs and symbols that are hard to interpret today. And they are deliberately vague to give us an idea of what is coming, but not so much specificity that we start to make predictions about when. 
This type of literature was not designed to offer an exact chronology. They were written to people living in difficult times, marked by exile or persecution. And so these books were were written to offer us a glimpse of future victory that causes people to hold on as we put our faith in God's story of grace, redemption, and restoration. They offer us a glimpse of future events in order to encourage us to stand strong in hard times. In a similar way, Jesus offered his disciples a glimpse of signs of his return. But his return is always couched in the language of God's redemption and restoration. Through the centuries, Christians have longed for a clearer glimpse of what the return of Jesus will look like. So let's hear a couple of thoughts from the art world that help us to wonder. Uh, The first picture that we're going to show uh, brings the Revelation theme home with Jesus riding a triumphant white horse. The second one captures Jesus with an angel blowing a trumpet, announcing to the world that the time has come, that that the king is returning, and that he will gather all of his followers from every corner of the earth. The truth is we don't know exactly what this will look like. I don't know if Jesus will be wearing the same clothing style that he did 2,000 years ago or if he comes in our day that he will dress in modern garb and look a little bit more like people of this world today. Artists simply wonder. So we turn this morning to the parable of the ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. My second question is, In order to understand the return of Jesus, must we master first century wedding culture to understand Jesus? He begins this parable this way. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So Matthew 25 records this story of these ten young women who are part of the bridal party. This parable was part of a section of Scripture in Matthew's Gospel known as the Olivet Discourse that focuses on signs of Jesus' return. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the temple and the city of Jerusalem, and his disciples asked him a question while he was sitting there on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, by the way. It's because of where he delivered these talks from. The question was, When will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the age to come? And so for two chapters, Jesus is responding to that one question, Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 25. So his teaching on the Mount of Olives has two sections. In Matthew 24, we find Jesus talking about signs of what is to come, along with warnings about false messiahs who will appear before Jesus returns, culminating with a warning that no one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return. Only God the Father knows. And then chapter 25 follows with three parables from Jesus that were designed to deliver a major point to remember. And the parable of the ten virgins is the first of these three successive parables. This parable builds on a sense of anticipation that is based on first century wedding culture. So yes, you have to understand a little bit of that background, but you don't have to master it because the point becomes very clear. In those days, once a marriage had been agreed upon by the two families, the timing of the wedding depended on the groom. Weddings were great events that involved the entire village community. 
But before the wedding could commence, the groom was expected to make arrangements. It was the groom's family, not the bride's family. Everything was flipped around in our society. And the groom would have to build a home or add a room onto his father's home, and the father would have to inspect it. And only when everything was right for this new young woman to enter their family would the father of the groom say, all right, everything is ready. You have done all that is expected. And the celebration then would not convince until the father of the groom had determined that all the arrangements were worthy of this new daughter-in-law. And so the parable is about ten young women who are anticipating that time and who are waiting knowing that the wedding banquet's time is near. The message of the parable is very simple. Waiting for the return of Jesus is like the dilemma of these ten young women. There was a long delay before the groom gave the signal that the party was ready to start. Five of these young women did not prepare well, and five others were well prepared. The five who did not plan ahead and did not buy extra oil to light their lamps at night came up a day and a dollar short, so to speak. The five young women who planned ahead had oil for their lamps, and when the groom appeared at midnight, they could walk through the darkness to find their way to the celebration. And they joined the procession toward that wedding banquet. Then we discover that the five who were not prepared showed up after the door to the banquet had been closed. And all the guests who had been invited and who were ready were inside. And when they tried to enter the banquet late, they were not recognized and they were turned away. So the final words of Jesus in verse 13 drive home his central point. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the main point. Keep watching, keep waiting, because we don't know when Jesus, the bridegroom, will come back to gather us all for the banquet. His point was that wise Christians keep watch, waiting for Jesus' return. We don't know exactly when he's coming, but we don't lose hope, we don't lose faith. Wise, faithful Christians live with the expectation that his return could surprise us at any time. I would add that no matter what view of the end times you've been taught or that you hold, we should always live with that kind of expectation that his return may come at any time and with the knowledge that his return involves a strong measure of surprise. Jesus' goal was to challenge us to keep watching and preparing, not that we need to become experts in first century wedding culture or that we need to predict the exact moment of his return. So, with those two questions in mind, what is it that Jesus really wants us to know about his return? Let me walk you through five simple things that he wants us to know based on this parable. Remember, the, the final verse has great stress. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. First, Jesus is coming again. There are teachers who became convinced that Jesus was mistaken there are theologians today who teach that when Jesus didn't return in the disciples' lifetimes, that they had just simply reinvented Christianity and put these words in Jesus' mouth after Jesus failed to keep his promise. But a closer look at the promises of Jesus gives us a very different picture. His return will include four features, surprise, glory, justice, and restoration. Let me walk you through those four features. 
The first point is he's coming again, and then we have these four features that apply to that. So we talk about the surprise factor. In chapter 24, Jesus warns about false messiahs who will deceive many. So don't respond, he is saying, when people say, look, here is the Messiah, or over there, there he is, run to him. His point is that the return of the king will be so dramatic that Jesus' followers will not be able to miss it. And they will not need a marketing team to convince you that he's really here in the world somewhere. But those who are not looking for Jesus will be caught unprepared. Surprise. Despite all that has been written, all of the prophecies about the timing of Jesus, all the books that have been written about when he will come, there will be great surprise. He wants us to know that. Also, he will return in glory. Now, I was tempted to put this idea of glory last, but I think that would be a mistake. Jesus consistently paints a picture of his return in scenes of glory. For instance, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, he tells us that the Son of Man will appear in the sky and that all the people will mourn. In other words, some people will be surprised and unprepared at that moment. He will come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Angels will blow trumpets and God will gather his people from all the corners of the world. New Testament scholars tell us that the best translation from the original Greek stresses that he will come with the clouds, not riding on the clouds. In the same way that they saw him rise up at his ascension in the clouds. Matthew chapter 25 verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all, his, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So here, Matthew 25 ties several scenes together that are part of Jesus' return, and one of them is his return to rule the world as the rightful king who is the heir of all of God's kingdom. His coming in glory means that Jesus will return with power and authority. His coming in glory pictures Jesus surrounded by all of the angels of heaven, not just one announcing, but all of them. I, I honestly wonder how amazing that will seem. His coming in glory views Jesus seated on his heavenly throne, only that throne will now be established here on earth, symbolizing the joining together of whatever heaven is like today and the renewal of this earth in its original splendor. And that picture of his glorious throne cannot be understood apart from the third theme, his justice. His return will bring justice to the earth. The two parables that follow this parable of the ten young women bring this theme home. The parable of the bags of gold that are handed out to three different servants focus on resources that the king gives to his servants. The king give five, gives five bags of gold to one, two bags to another, and a, a, a single bag of gold to a third person. And then the king goes on a long journey. After a long time, the king returns and he asks for an accounting from all three of these servants. Those who have wisely invested the king's resources are rewarded with more. But the third person who buried the king's resources, knowing that he is a hard man and he would expect it all to be given back, is thrown outside the kingdom. And that is followed by the parable of the sheep and goats, which focuses on the priorities of the king. 
when Jesus returns, he will separate the sheep from the goats. In other words, people will come to him and he'll separate them into two crowds. Those who have been busy doing the work of the kingdom because they are a part of the kingdom inherit the kingdom. Those who have neglected kingdom values simply reveal that they were never part of the kingdom and they are put aside. Jesus' point is that those who are truly members of the kingdom of God in this life show mercy, offer hospitality, lift up those in need with compassion, provide clothing, food, and water to those who lack, all in the name of Jesus because these are things that Jesus would do. And Jesus paints a portrait of a divine reckoning when he returns. He will delight in those acts where we have sought to put his kingdom first. And those who have only served themselves will have proven to not be a part of his kingdom, the kingdom of the transformed at all. This picture gives an account of of people giving an account to Jesus and his glorious throne causes us all to realize all the more now is the time to put your faith in Jesus as Savior, your faith in Jesus as Lord and King. Don't wait. Don't put this off. The surprise factor and the justice factor and and the whole notion that uh, he is going to call for an accounting from us challenges us to be about his business today and be in relationship with him today. I would challenge you, if you haven't done this yet, surrender the leadership of your life to Jesus the King today. Put your faith and trust and allegiance in Jesus and be made new by his spirit. Do you know you can do that very simply by whispering a prayer, saying, Lord, I have put this off. I want to put my faith in you. I want to follow you from this day forward. And if you whisper a simple prayer like that to him, it begins the start of his transformation work inside of you. And you will have the sense as you continue to grow in faith that his spirit is with you, guiding you step by step. And that the changes he brings in your life are not forced by other people. They are led by the spirit of God. But it starts with a surrender of the heart and the mind to Jesus as our leader, as our king, as our Lord. So his return will include surprise and glory and justice, and his return will also bring restoration. Throughout Old Testament history, we see snippets of heaven touching earth. Think of Moses before the burning bush when the voice speaks to him and says, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. We see that sense of heaven coming to earth in that moment, in that one spot. Think of Elijah on the mountain as God passes by. Think of God dwelling in the camp of Israel through a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And there's this powerful sense of God dwelling with his people. But the gap between heaven and earth, God and people, becomes wide over time. That's also part of the story. Think of the Tower of Babel where people tried to reach heaven without God. The point isn't that they could have physically done that. It represents how self-sufficient and self-centered they had become. They came to believe that they could construct a heaven without God or without the leading of God. Friends, this is what many people in our world believe today. They argue that everyone goes to heaven, that we are all owed this reward and we can find our own way there. In a sense, our culture believes in their own heaven that has nothing to do with the expectations of a holy God. And if the words of Jesus are true, 
they're in for a shock, the surprise factor will hit. Then when Jesus arrives on the earth the first time, we see glimpses of heaven touching earth again. Angels attend to his birth and announce his arrival to Joseph and Mary and the shepherds. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus as he is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. The glory of God transfigures Jesus as he appears on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. When Jesus ascends to the heavens, he rises in the clouds, and an angel tells the disciples that he will return in the same way. And the final scene of the Bible reveals a prophetic vision given to John, the last living disciple. The kingdom of heaven and the dwelling place of God comes down to earth, and the Lord establishes a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And the Lord dwells forevermore in the midst of his people. The final stage of God's great plan is one of restoration. Restoration to the earth in its original glory and splendor and more. Restoration of God's people from every nation of the world in one fellowship. Where Jesus reigns as king. The king that God the Father has established over all his creation. Restoration of God's people in complete, intimate fellowship with the Father forever. I think of King David's final visionary thought expressed in the 23rd Psalm. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the final picture that we are all invited to experience, revel in, be caught up by. So here's the big idea that I've been trying to get across this morning. Wise Christians live with anticipation of Jesus' return and days of surprise, glory, justice, and restoration. Wise Christians live with this tremendous sense of anticipation of his return, knowing that there are days that will be filled with surprise, glory, justice, and restoration. The final stage of redemptive history brings all of these elements, surprise, glory, justice, and and restoration, together with the return of the king. And this is why we live with hope for better days. This is why we continue to pray, as we talked about last Sunday, thy kingdom come. This is why we consider ourselves citizens of the kingdom that is yet to come. As one by one we place our faith in Jesus, the kingdom grows all around us. I hope that in some way, shape, or form, this Uh, experience of learning more about the kingdom whets your appetite for two things. First, for our approach toward Easter over the next couple of weeks. But even more than that, as we live on with the anticipation that one day we will see Jesus the King. One day we will see people from every culture bow before him and profess his name. And one day we will experience the joy of the kingdom, the joy of the celebration, of being inside the walls for that wedding ceremony of the great bridegroom and his people. And I pray that you and I will influence many, many, many people to put their faith in Jesus so that they will celebrate with us and experience the joy of God with us on that day. I've written out a prayer that uh, I'd love for you to 
read with me, whether you are at home and watching online or whether you are here in the room. And it simply wraps up the thoughts that we have been sharing here this morning through our worship time, through uh, celebrating this marvelous parable of the ten young women. But would you read this with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to give us a glimpse of your kingdom, to accomplish victory over sin and evil for your people, and to offer us ways to serve you now. Come soon, we pray, and make all things right. In your name we pray, amen. And God, I ask that you will bless your people as we walk with you throughout this week. Give us the powerful sense of the presence of your spirit guiding us. Give us the joy of having stood with others who proclaim your name and made the songs that we sing stay in our minds throughout the week so that when the difficult times come during this week, we will walk with hope because of the time we have spent with you here today. It's in Jesus' mighty name we ask. Amen. Friends, thank you for being here today. I look forward to seeing you again next Sunday. And I am so glad that you're here.